But turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Romans. The book of Romans. If you have a Bible, if you don't have a Bible and you'd like to just share with someone next to you, um, there are some Bibles in the back, um, back there as well. If you'd like to grab one, you're welcome to. Or you can just listen as I will um, read many uh, passages this morning from are uh, from my Bible, and you can just listen and kind of follow along. We're doing a series right now entitled, um, I Don't Think It Means What You Think It Means, and it's gonna, we're going to finish it up, I believe, next week. Then my family will be going on a little vacation, and then when we come back, we're going to dive into a book of the Bible again and just go verse by verse through it. Um, my agenda, if you will, I believe that the Holy Spirit kind of directed me to do this, was I feel like there are words in Scripture that are confusing because of the way that the culture has changed definitions of things. And if something has a different definition of it, then it changes all of the things associated with it. And so I just really felt compelled by the Lord to re-address some things that maybe we've taken for granted when people hear the word grace or they hear other words, worship, they hear about worship that they they really don't know what the biblical meaning of it is. And to just kind of revisit um, some of those things so that we are at least in tune with the scriptures and can, when we hear those words, can make a proper connection to what that means in life. So um, with that said, this morning I'm going to talk about the gospel and uh, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ without, without question Without debate, the gospel is the most important theme of the Bible. Um, from Genesis to Revelation, we are presented the gospel. We are told what it means to be restored back to God. We are told what it means to be in favor with God, to have his kindness towards us. We are presented in a 66-letter um, book um, about God's love for us, displayed in and through his work to restore us to himself through the gospel. Uh, it, is, it is sad. This book is, uh, that I hold in my hands is saturated with a central story of how you and how I can be restored back into a proper relationship with God, into a proper fellowship with God based upon the work that he has accomplished for us. There's no more important theme that you, we see in this book than that theme. The problem is, is that that term and that theme has been distorted. It's been confused, it's been warped, it's been uh, taught inadequately and inaccurately uh, in regards to what does the Bible say about it. And so I want to just, I'm I'm literally, we're going to spend this morning unfolding the book of Romans in a very, very um, flyover way, but I want you to walk out of here knowing what is the gospel. What is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? Because it is the most important part of this book. I wrote here, it is the central theme of the Bible. It is God's passion for mankind, and it is the result and the reward for Christ's sacrifice and his resurrection. 
Psalm 2 and verse 8, speaking of our Lord, says this, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, and the ends of the earth your possession. And how will the nations become the inheritance of Christ, and the ends of the earth become his possession? It will be through the gospel, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel starts and concludes the Bible. Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve have fallen, in Genesis chapter number 2, in Genesis 3, they fall in Genesis 3, and then the Lord kills an animal and clothes them with this animal's skin, which is a picture of the gospel being clothed in an atonement that was not made by the one who had sinned, but was made by the God who created the one who had sinned. And an atonement is made, and the skin of that animal is put on Adam and Eve to cover them. It's a picture of the covering of our sins in Christ. That's the beginning of the Bible, the end of the Bible in Revelation 22. The Bible closes with a gospel call. He says, all who are thirsty, let them come and take of the water of life. If you're thirsty, you can come. This is the gospel. This is the offering of the gospel. The Bible says in Isaiah 52 and verse number 7, how beautiful on the, upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The same verse is repeated in Romans 10 and verse number 15. The gospel is the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ, his sacrifice for our sins and the deliverance, as he says here in Isaiah, the the happiness, the, the joy, the peace that comes as a result of having a relationship with God, a restored relationship with God that's no longer hindered by our sins. The gospel is the reason for Jesus Christ coming into the world. Luke 4 and verse 18 and 19 says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus Christ came into this world for the purpose of bringing the gospel to mankind. That's why he came. He obviously accomplished the gospel through his death and resurrection, but he also proclaimed the gospel. All of his three and a half years of ministry was a proclamation of repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And then he leaves his disciples here on the earth and he tells them to go and to preach the same message. And then he tells his church in the church epistles, he says, preach the same message. Repent for the forgiveness of sins so that you might be restored into a proper relationship with God. Listen, folks, the problem in our world today is that we're not, we've not been restored to a proper relationship with God because people don't understand the gospel and they haven't embraced the gospel. If we can get back to an understanding that what we need in our culture is not better systems and better programs, but what we need in our culture is righteousness, and righteousness that only comes through Jesus Christ. If you have Jesus Christ, you have his perfect righteousness living inside of you, and there's no righteousness absent from his perfect righteousness. Now you just live out what he has planted within. The book of Romans is without question the most detailed gospel message. 
It is, I would say, the greatest explanation of the gospel. Matter of fact, for many scholars, it is known as the gospel tract of the Bible. Some would refer to it as the Romans road. So what I'd like to do this morning is spend some time talking to you about this good news, talking to you about the peace and the joy that is being offered to us through this gospel message, the peace that comes through Christ, the peace that comes through being restored into a relationship with God where you no longer have to be in fear of his condemnation, but you can rest in his favor. I want to systematically walk through this book and share with you some things about the gospel. So if you're there, just open up to chapter number one. That's where we're going to start. The Bible starts in verse number one. The apostle Paul calls himself one who has been set apart. One who has been called is another way of looking at it to the gospel message. In other words, the apostle Paul saw himself as the one as one whose life commission was for the spreading of the gospel of Christ. And we have that same commission. That's why we've been left here. We've been left in the world so that we might spread the gospel. We are here to share the gospel with other people. Everyone that is a saved person has been left here. He's been called. You've been called to different jobs. You've been called to different stations in life. But you haven't been left here to be successful in those stations. You've been less You've been left here to be gospel in those stations. Does that make sense? You've been stationed, positioned in a job, in a career, in a school, in a whatever. You've been left there not to be successful. Yes, you will be successful. But you've been left there for gospel in those places. You are the only gospel that many of those people will see. So I want to look at five things this morning through the book of Romans that will help us understand this. I wanted to point out in verse 16, the apostle Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile or to the Greek. So five things as we go through the book of Romans, I think, that are healthy for us to understand about the gospel. Number one, the gospel points out our problem. The first three chapters of the book of Romans, uh, uh, really a, a large portion of the book of Romans, is meant to show us that there's a problem. There's something wrong. The reason why there's this message of something that is broken is because unless there's something broken, there's no need for it to be fixed. Until people recognize that there's a problem. Until people recognize that there's something broken, there's something wrong, there's something within me that's not right, until they recognize that, they they will not seek a solution or they will not seek the right solution. There's no need for healing if no one is sick. That's why the Bible says that Jesus Christ did not come for the well, but he came for the sick. There's no need for resurrection unless somebody is dead There's no need for deliverance unless somebody is bound, and there's no need for salvation unless someone is a sinner. The gospel to a self-righteous, self-sufficient individual, think about this, this is just a picture analogy, the gospel to a self-righteous, self-sufficient individual is like a life-saving raft to Michael Phelps in a pool. 
And just think about that. I mean, maybe you don't know who Michael Phelps is. Michael Phelps is one of the greatest swimmers to ever, uh, I think, grace America. The gospel to somebody who is self-righteous and self-sufficient is like throwing a raft to Michael Phelps in a pool. It makes no sense to him. Matter of fact, in that moment, this act to Michael Phelps would seem somewhat offensive. It would imply that Michael Phelps can't get to the shore. It would imply that Michael Phelps can't do it on his own. It would be offensive, it would be ignorant, and it would be unjustifiable. And would likely lead to Michael Phelps being angry, perhaps laughing, or maybe outright mockery to the one who has shared this life-saving boat. This is how the gospel is received in our culture today. It is laughed at. It is mocked. It makes people angry and frustrated. The true gospel results in this. Why does it result in this? Because people don't see their need for a gospel. They don't see their need for deliverance. The first three chapters of Romans does everything within the Scripture's power to express to us that we're broken. That we're, we're broken and that we need someone to fix us. For the gospel to make sense, the sinfulness of the heart must be exposed and desperation overcoming judgment must be felt. Let me say that again. For the gospel to make sense, the sinfulness of the heart must be exposed and the desperation overcoming judgment must be felt. An unsaved person must feel the fact that they are sinful, they have defamed the name of the one who has created them, and that God in his righteousness is going to judge them perfectly and eternally. And they must feel that. That that reality must grip their heart. It should strike the greatest fear into the lost person to realize that they have defamed the name of the one who created them and continues to give them life every day and that he will righteously one day judge them. Until a lost person gets the feeling of that, until the Michael Phelps realizes that he's been swimming in the middle of the ocean and he has no strength in his muscles anymore and he's gone under the water for the last time and no matter how powerful of a swimmer he thought he was, in this moment he realizes, I have no hope. Until he gets to that moment in his life, he will not embrace help. Matter of fact, he will not understand help. He will see no need for it. The guilty must acknowledge that they're guilty and they must embrace the fact that they deserve to be punished. I know this sounds harsh. I'm not trying to be harsh. My heart, my heart is burdened that we are a culture of people who haven't embraced our sinfulness and so we have no clue as to why we need a gospel message that implies God sending his own son and pouring out his wrath upon him. We don't get that. It doesn't make sense to us because we haven't embraced the sinfulness of our sins. Romans 1 through 3 tries to help us with that, tries to explain that. Let me give you, let me read some to you or with you. Um, 
If you'll turn with me to the end of chapter number one, the first thing that we see about man's sinfulness is simply that it's total. Some would call this total depravity. And Romans 1 gives us this picture. The Bible says in verse number 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their own thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for the images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So in other words, man has elevated himself so high and has exalted himself with such great pride that he no longer needs to worship God. He now can worship the things that he has created by his own hands. Verse 24 says, Therefore God gave them up to the lust of their own hearts to impurity, to this dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served creatures rather than the one who created, who is blessed forevermore. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations to that which are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passions for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. We're moving, we're sliding down a slippery slope right here, aren't we? We're, we're seeing, what the, what the Lord is doing here is he's showing us man's heart. He's showing us the heart of mankind. God, when God says that he gives them over to these things, it's not implying that God is making them do these things. All it's implying is, is that God's giving them more rope to do what they want to do. You see, what the end of Romans is teaching us is it's teaching us that man is depraved as far as God allows man to be depraved. The only thing that keeps man from being worse is the fact that God is the one holding the rope. As long as he lets more out, and what's he doing in America right now? We ask ourselves, why is there so much lawlessness going on? The reason isn't because there's something unique going on. It's because God is letting out more rope. And man will become more and more lawless as long as God lets out the rope because man's heart is dark and man thinks themselves not to be in darkness and man thinks themselves not to be sinful. So what does God do? He lets out more rope so that they will hopefully see that they're in darkness. Because listen to me, folks. Mankind in their own self-righteousness cannot save themselves. They need Jesus So what does he do? He gives them more rope so that they will see that we are defiled. And then they will run to Jesus. You will not run to Jesus until you realize that you're sinful. So what does he do? He gives them over. He gives them over to to shameful sexual sins, it says. Shameful moral, uh, immoral, immorality. He gives them over. He lets them do what is natural for them to do in their sinful state. And then the Bible goes on in verse 29, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, he gave them over to debased minds to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteous, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, Boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. 
That's a, quite a list, isn't it? I, I would say that it describes us today, doesn't it? And all it is, listen, all it is is an exposure of man's heart. It's God saying, please see your fallenness. Please see your desperate situation so that you can run to Christ and you can find help and you can find hope and you can find forgiveness. But as long as mankind lives in this self-elevated state, they will not run to Christ. Verse 32 says, though they know God's righteous decree, watch 32, it's really just, hmm. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they even know the truth. They not only do these things, but they give approval. This phrase simply means that they encourage other people to do them. Not only do they practice things that they know the end result is death, they encourage other people to do it. They have things that promote these types of sins. It's not just living in these sins themselves, but they want other people to join them in their sins. Mankind's sinfulness is is absolute. It is complete. Head of the toes, head of the (laughs) bottom of your feet to the top of your head. Man, that was like backwards, head of the toes. From the bottom of your feet to the top of your head, sinfulness. Total sinfulness. What keeps us from doing worse than we do is the fact that God withholds our rope. Thank God for that. He's actually called, in the book of 2 Thessalonians, he's called the one who restrains. He's the restrainer. Mankind's sin is absolute, is complete. Every aspect of humanity is in utter darkness. Ephesians 2 and verse 1 refers to us as being dead in trespasses and sins. Being dead in trespasses and sins. James 2 and verse 10 says if we break one part of the law, we've broken all of the law. Picture it this way. God's law is a law. We think of it as 10 laws. It's one law. Uh, A friend of mine illustrated it once at a high school. He brought a mirror up there, and he had listed out all of the Ten Commandments on this mirror, and he invited anybody in the audience to come forward and break one of the laws. So he gave him a hammer, and he said, I want you to break one of these commandments. And so obviously they took a hammer, and they hit one of the commandments, and all of the mirror shattered because it was impossible to break one of them. God's law is singular, And all of the things that we see in the Ten Commandments are connected to his law. And when we break one of them, we break all of them. Because God, it's like, because God is God. And when you sin, you sin against God. It doesn't matter what you do in that sin against God. It is a sin against God. And that's what matters. Mankind's sinfulness is complete. It is revealed by God loosening his restraints. The world is not going to get better, it's going to get worse. The Bible even says in 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 7, the mystery of lawlessness is going to become greater until finally the lawless one, who is the Antichrist, is brought onto the scene. It's not going to decline. The lawlessness is not going to, to get better, it's going to get worse. Why? Because God's giving us more rope. Man in his nature wants lawlessness. And we see that all around us today. Man is totally sinful. And listen, number two, 
the total of humanity is totally sinful. All of humanity. Look at chapter number 3. You're probably familiar with this passage. In verse number 9, it says this, What then? Are the Jews better off than the Gentiles? Are the Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Gentiles, are under sin. As it is written, There is none righteous, no, not one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks after God. All have turned aside. Together they have all become worthless. No one does good. No, not even one. He goes on to say, verse number 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Verse number 23 says, for the wages, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It's not just the whole of us that's the, the total of us that's sinful. It's all of us that are sinful. Every individual is totally depraved in the earth. And the only thing that makes us not live out that depravity is the fact that God restrains us. Listen to what Jeremiah 17 verse 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? Genesis 6 and verse 5 says, The law saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The whole of humanity is sinful. None of us are any better than anybody else. We must come to the realization of that. Not only is it the whole of humanity, but it's total condemnation. The Bible says in verse, chapter 1 and verse 18 that the wrath of God is against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men. The wrath of God is against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men. Every unrighteousness and every ungodliness will experience the wrath of Almighty God. And we are all sinful. And we must come to that place before we're able to, to understand that there is now good news. The gospel is not just about that. We have to embrace that, understand that before we get to the good news. So what is the good news? The second thought this morning. First of all, the gospel exposes our sinfulness. The gospel tells us that there's a problem. It shares that problem with us. The second thought this morning is the gospel provides a solution. If you go down to chapter number three, we'll look at what that solution is. The Bible says in verse 21, now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. You'll notice right away that you have a, you have a righteousness being presented that's not connected to the law. This is super important. Why is it important that there is a righteousness that's not connected to the law? Because we're all what? You guys tell me. We're all what? We're all sinners. That means that we're all unrighteous. So if there's a righteousness that's not connected to obedience to the law, I want to know about it. Because I have no righteousness of my own that's capable of bringing salvation to me. I want to know about a righteousness that is not connected to the law. A righteousness that is different from that one, that which is connected to the law. So what he says here is there is a righteousness that is not, he says, the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
And they are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his his divine forbearance he hath passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The Bible goes on to talk about boasting. Is there boasting? And there's no boasting because it's an act of grace. A, A few things about the solution to this problem of sin. Number one is the solution is apart from the law. It's not a righteousness that comes by obedience to the law. And listen to me, salvation has never been the result of obedience to the law. It's never been a result of obedience to the law. The law was sent so that man might see themselves as sinful. Romans 5 tells us that. It says that man was dying for their sinfulness. I'm paraphrasing. Man was dying for their sinfulness but didn't get it. They didn't know why they were dying. They were dying because of sin, and they didn't realize why they were dying. So what does God do? He sends them the law, and the law says to them, this is why you're dying. The law simply explains to to the people of the world that this is why you're facing the punishment that you're facing, because you are sinful. Without Without the knowledge of sin does not mean that there's no condemnation. If somebody, if somebody comes into our country and they don't know that it's wrong to rob a bank, but they rob a bank, does the police say, well, you know, he really didn't know it was wrong to do that? Or does he get held accountable for robbing the bank? You guys know the answer to that question, right? He gets held accountable. And the same principle takes place with the gospel. It is the law was sent to show us that we were sinful, to press us into a recognition of our, of our, of our lawlessness so that we then would run to Christ. Under the law, all are guilty, but there is a righteousness that's apart from the law, a righteousness that is a gift. The Bible describes it in Romans 4. He calls it a righteousness that's based upon believing, a righteousness that's based upon faith. It is, it is embracing by faith what God has done, and he credits that to your account as righteousness. And that's what God the judge can do. He can credit your account for righteousness based upon your belief and built around the fact that his son paid for your sins. The solution is apart from the law. Number two, the solution is a free gift of grace. Romans 6.23, the Bible says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Ephesians 2.8.9, For we have been saved by grace, the Bible says, through faith, and that not of ourselves, it is a gift from God, not of works so that no one can boast. The gospel is that we are sinners and that there is a solution that is not connected to obedience to the law, but is connected to faith in Christ. It is trusting in what Christ has done for us that brings salvation. This salvation is freely given. As a matter of fact, it can never be earned, it cannot be deserved, and it cannot be merited. Those who seek to earn it, deserve it, or merit it will actually miss it. Can I say that again? Those who seek to earn it 
merit it or deserve it will miss it. This is the whole principle of the Lord's teaching to the Jewish people is that they sought a righteousness that came to obedience to the law and the Lord says to them, you're going to miss true righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. Romans 11 and verse 6, the Bible says, for if it be by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. It is a free gift. Salvation is a free gift that God gives, that God bestows upon all of those who believe. So you don't have to work for it. As a matter of fact, you can't work for it. You must embrace it by faith. The solution is a free gift. Number three, the solution is based on Jesus' death. We read that in our text here at the end of chapter number three, that Jesus Christ was set forth as the propitiation for our sins. It's a big word, propitiation. It simply means that Jesus Christ's death satisfied God's wrath for those it was meant. In other words, all of those who have faith in Christ have their sins propitiated by Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ satisfied God's wrath towards all those who will believe and embrace what Jesus Christ has done for them. Jesus Christ's atonement was a substitutionary atonement. It means that he literally stood in our place. He died on our behalf. He died for our benefit, and he died because of us. Did you get that? He died because of us. He died on our behalf, and he died for our benefit. He was a substitution for us. If you read Isaiah 53, the Bible says that he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. The gospel is is that we're sinners, and Jesus Christ paid the ultimate price on the cross under the wrath of Almighty God, his Father, who, 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 who displayed his wrath on his Son in a moment I believe that the, the sun was darkened in that moment and the, 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 there was a great cloud over the moment so that in, no one could see what, what was taking place when God was pouring out his wrath on Christ. It's amazing to think about when you consider the fact that in a moment, God poured out eternal punishment on his son. Not temporary punishment, not momentary punishment, but in one act, God poured out eternal punishment on his son, Jesus Christ. When he turned his back on him and said, I cannot look upon you, for you are sin. Jesus Christ bore our sins so that we could not, because we could not, and so that we would not have to bear them. The cross is one of the most horrific events in history, but also one of the most fruitful events in history. The solution is based upon Jesus Christ's death, his substitutionary atonement, his propitiation, the fact that he satisfied God's eternal wrath towards us. His redemptive work, Jesus Christ, in this moment, purchases a people for himself and his forgiveness. Listen to me. This is based upon the fact that Jesus Christ is now, that God is now able to look over your sins. You say, what is that all about? That's about forgiveness. God is able to look over your sins because Jesus Christ paid for them fully. 
He doesn't have to hold you accountable for them because he held Jesus accountable for them. That's why the Bible says in the the end of this chapter that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. The solution is based upon Jesus Christ's death. Number four, the solution is complete in his resurrection. When Jesus Christ raises from the dead, he tells us that he's going to send his spirit and his spirit is going to come to live within us. And what happens when the Spirit of God comes to live within us is that the Spirit of God brings all of the things that God requires for us to be accepted in his kingdom. In other words, we are brought into his righteousness because we are are indwelt by his righteousness. It's not our own righteousness. We don't become righteous on our own merits, but we are filled with his righteousness. And God now looks down upon us and sees us in Christ or sees Christ in us. So then we're accepted based upon the merits of whom? We're accepted based upon the merits of Christ. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 1.30, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. In other words, Christ is everything that we need to be accepted by God. And when a person gets saved, when they embrace the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ as being for them, they become a partaker of the Spirit, and he lives within them, and he brings with him all of those things. It's the hope that we have. Amen. It's the hope that we have. The gospel provides the solution And the solution is in none other than Christ himself. There is no salvation in any other. There is no name by which anybody can be saved except the name of Jesus Christ. He is the only one who can save. He is sufficient to the task, and he can save anyone that he chooses to save. Anyone that will repent of their sins and place their faith in Christ, the Bible promises them that they will be saved. And it's free. There's nothing you can do to earn it or deserve it. Number three, the gospel transforms life. If you read uh, Romans 6, 7, and 8, you will find four truths. When a person gets saved, they take on a new identity. They're no longer the person that they were before. They're now a new person. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone be in Christ, he is a new creature. You become a totally new person, a different person. If you're here this morning, you say, Pastor John, I would just love to be a new person. I would love to take on a new identity. Maybe your past identity, it's, like, it's kind of like the guy who, who in his young life, he commits a bunch of crimes, right? And he's, he's got this whole rap list. I mean, and he gets older and he's like, man, I'd really like to have that rap list erased, right? I'd like to have a new identity. Well, the Bible says that Jesus Christ offers us a new identity through the gospel, Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. Your, your rap list can be erased by Christ. It's literally referred to in John 3 as being a new birth. Talk about taking on a new identity. There's nothing bigger than actually having a new birth. You're a new person. We have a new identity. We have a new master. At the end of chapter number 6, we're no longer a slave to sin. We're no longer a slave to the worthless wickedness of this world, but we become a servant of the Lord. We have a new master. Chapter 7, we have a new partner. Talking about marriage, talking about intimacy, we have someone that we, we can walk with, that we can share time with, that we can find comfort with, that walks with us every day. He never fails us. He never leaves us or forsakes us. I tell you something about Christ. If you walk with Christ, you will find that he is the most faithful friend that you could ever have. He's never not there. 
There will be friends that you have in this life that you will, won't be there for you one day. There will be friends that you have in this life that will be angry with you and they'll not support you or whatever might be the case. Listen to me. Jesus is always there for you. He will comfort you. He will strengthen you. He will enable you. He will tell you the truth every single time. There is no friend like Jesus. That's what Romans 7 is all about. You can have a new friend in Jesus. He gives us not only a new partner, but he gives us a new standing. The Bible says in Romans 8 and verse 1, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Isn't that an amazing truth? When a person accepts the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Bible says that their standing before God is completely changed. There, are, there, are no, there is no condemnation before God on behalf of those who are a partaker of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They've gone from being guilty to innocent. They've gone from being condemned to forgiven. They've gone from being sinful to being righteous. They've gone from being the enemy of God to being the friend of God. They've gone from being under his wrath to being under his favor. Totally new position. Totally new position. Our standing before God is completely different. The Lord offers a new life. Listen, the gospel offers a new life. If you're here today and you say, Pastor John, I'd love to go to heaven when I die, but I just don't really want a new life. First of all, you haven't embraced what your old life is about. You haven't seen the first three chapters of your sinfulness to realize that you need a new life. And the Lord Jesus Christ is the only one who is capable of giving it. Number four, the gospel is received by faith. The Bible tells us in Romans 10, you're familiar with this passage as well, Verse number nine, the Bible says, um, we must not put Christ to, the, let's see here, I'm in, let me try to get over to Romans here. It's weird how 1 Corinthians doesn't read the same as Romans. We'll do, we'll do Romans. He says in verse number nine, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Notice that there's nothing in here about works, nothing about doing certain uh, uh, religious traditions, nothing about keeping laws or being obedient to this or being obedient to that. He's like, if you believe in your heart that Jesus Christ raised from the dead, if you believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins, if you embrace what Christ Jesus has done for you, he says, you will be saved, you will be delivered, you will be healed, not necessarily always of the physical, but this is referring to the spiritual. Listen to me, folks. Our greatest struggle today is not the physical. It is the spiritual manifesting itself in the physical. But it's like anything else. It's like you might have a, a, a sore on your arm that might be cancerous. You're not just going to go to the doctor and say, hey, scrape this off and make it look good. You're going to want them to get down and get the cancer out because you know that there's a problem that's beyond the surface. There's a problem today that's beyond the surface. It's not it's, it's, it's manifesting itself on the outside. We see it all the time, but it's truly an internal problem. It's a spiritual problem. He doesn't tell us to fix our own problems. He just says to embrace Christ. If you will confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Verse 13, for whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The solution is received by faith. Faith is seeing the invisible. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, we walk by faith and not by sight. Faith is expecting the supernatural. It's trusting the impossible. 
It's believing God in spite of what other people think or say. Faith is trusting that Christ is sufficient, Christ is supreme, and Christ is sovereign. Faith is believing that Jesus Christ's payment for your sins was sufficient to satisfy God's wrath for your sins past, present, and future. And faith is believing that his resurrection is your resurrection and you're now a new creature in Christ. Faith is believing those things. It's embracing those things as a reality and then living like they're true. Faith is giving your life to Jesus Christ and trusting him with it. And in regards to our analogy from the beginning, faith is grabbing the life-saving raft and holding on for dear life. Faith is grabbing the life-saving raft and holding on for dear life. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And then lastly, the gospel produces fruit. Romans 12 through 16, the last chapters of this, of this book, tell us that this salvation that changes us on the inside also changes us on the outside. He says in verse one, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. This is the product of understanding the rest. You see, God changes us on the inside, and when we're changed on the inside, it changes us on the outside. In closing... You being here this morning is affirmation that God wanted you to hear these truths. The question this morning is, is what will we do with them? What will we do with the truths of the gospel? What will we do with the truth of Christ? First of all, are you willing to acknowledge that you are sinful? That you have broken God's law and brought shame to his name? And you are, are you willing to acknowledge the fact that you deserve ultimate condemnation? If God were to judge you this morning, would you find him to be unfair? Imagine a lot of our world would say that God would be unfair for judging us this morning. But as we know our sinfulness, we know he is never unfair. Second, do you believe that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came down from heaven as a man lived a perfect life, and died specifically for your sins? Do you believe that he rose again the third day, overcoming sin, Satan, and condemnation? And do you believe his promises to gift you all that is his by living in you? Do you believe that? Thirdly, do you desire a new identity, a new master, a new companion, and a new standing before God? Do you believe that he's capable of providing these things in Christ? Fourthly, are you ready this morning to trust him by faith? Trust his promises, trust his word, and give your life to Jesus? Do you trust that God said, do you trust what God says in his word and what Jesus did is enough that you would be willing to bet your life on it? You see, the gospel must be received by faith. 
And it's not just trusting your temporary life to Jesus. It's trusting your eternal life to him. Do you trust him? Do you believe him? Do you want to follow him? Lastly, are you ready for a new life? Jesus will take you places you never thought you would go and accomplish things in and through you that you never thought possible. You ready for that? Desire that? If you do, the answer is simple. I quoted it to you a moment ago, Romans 10, 13. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you. We thank you for a gospel that's not built around things that we have done or things that we will do. It's not built around our own righteousness. It's not built around our ability to keep and obey a law that is perfect. But Lord, it's built around a a humanity that has recognized its sinfulness, has realized that their only hope is through a substitute, somebody coming in their place and paying for their sins and setting them free to be new. We believe this morning that Jesus Christ is that one. We trust him. We pray that if there's one that doesn't this morning that is maybe struggling with it, I pray that you would help them. Help them to see the truth and to embrace it by faith. Please be with us as we go home throughout this week. Bless the week. Help these truths to be in our hearts. In Jesus Christ's name, amen.